Yes or no? Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Congressman, cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And uh, happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to uh, the latest uh, Drug Report podcast. Uh, I'm Luke Niferatis, your host. I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Excited about some of the stuff we have to talk about this week uh, and the Drug Report uh, email coming out tomorrow. So for those of you who have not subscribed, please check out thedrugreport.org and go ahead and subscribe so you can get our uh, twice-weekly emails, um, as well as check out our sponsoring organizations, which I'm um, a partner in running with Dr. Kevin Sabet, uh, the uh, Smart Approaches to Marijuana website, Sam, learnaboutsam.org, and FDPS, which is gooddrugpolicy.org. Check out those two websites for our work on marijuana policy and beyond. So uh, before I get into some of the uh, recent news stories that are going to drive our newsletter tomorrow, I wanted to briefly touch on uh, about four days ago or so, uh, CBS did a whole write-up on a new journal article uh, that came out in the uh, Journal of Tobacco and Nicotine Research. And what that uh, story, what that journal uh, found was that in places that banned menthol cigarettes, they saw a uh, coinciding 25% decrease in tobacco use. So 25% of people uh, completely quit smoking as a result of that ban. And so I think research like that is really critical to highlight because there are a lot of people out there that say prohibition doesn't work. Uh, you know, uh, banning things doesn't work. There's always just going to be black market uh, demand that will be met uh, by the black market if you, uh, you know, don't regulate it, legalize it, allow it to happen, whatever it is. We're talking about marijuana, psychedelics, any kind of substance out there, uh, tobacco. And so it's really important that we understand the research does not back those suggestions up at all. Um, Of course, banning something, making something illegal is never perfect, Uh, We have many laws in this country that are good and just laws that are not perfect. They don't eliminate murder by making murder illegal. They don't eliminate theft by making theft illegal. But what laws do is they deter activities, and they're fairly effective at doing that uh, when they're implemented in the right way. And so research like what we saw in the Journal of uh, Tobacco and Nicotine Research uh, just further emphasizes that. Banning menthol cigarettes, which are one of the most popular ways to use cigarettes, uh, had a co- corresponding public health win that is sizable, 25% reduction. So shouldn't forget that these policies actually do work. And not surprising, because you look at illicit substances more broadly, um, we did an analysis of uh, the WHO and UN data looking at global uh, usage of illicit drugs. And for the drugs that are illegal, their usage rates are a fraction of a percent of the usage rates of the legal drugs. So clearly making something illegal deters use, it discourages use, it makes it frowned upon in the culture. And even though there's always gonna be, you know, a few people, there's always gonna be a subset of the population that will use these illicit substances, that number is far less than what we see with legal and normalized substances. So let's not buy into the hype about regulation. Uh, And with that, I'll step off that uh, soapbox, if you will. So a couple of stories I want to highlight. The first story is uh, continuing this thread on New York's failures um, with uh, marijuana. There's a story in the New York Times that it's going to be in the highlighted section of our uh, drug report coming out. 
And that is on how marijuana that is being grown uh, legally in licensed farms in Oklahoma is ending up in New York and is being um, sold on the black market. Uh, Again, continuing to dispel this myth of legalization regulation getting rid of the black market, um, that continues to be a raging issue in New York. And also Oklahoma can't keep its weed within its own borders. Um, So I'll read you a few excerpts from this story. Uh, It is paywalled. um, So just to kind of give you a little highlight says 7,000 pounds were confiscated. Uh, The weed was from licensed farms in Oklahoma, according to the State Bureau of Narcotics, but the driver was heading to New York, where his cargo could fetch millions of dollars among legacy street dealers and new rogue dispensaries that make up the illicit market, officials said. The episode, this is really critical, the episode, which was part of a broader crackdown on Oklahoma's rogue operators, offered a glimpse of a troubling trend that has emerged from the nation's patchwork approach to legalization, they always blame it on uh, on the state by state version, even though in Canada this is an issue, even even with federal legalization. But neither here nor there. Uh, New York, like other states, has legalized marijuana, but has been very slow to allow licensed retail outlets to open and licensed producers to expand. As a result, there's you know all these issues, and it's really funny because they say you know slow to roll it out, slow to license folks, but it's like isn't that how regulation is supposed to work? Uh, the FDA doesn't work on the timetable of the industries to which it is beholden. Um, we, as uh, you know, for regulating substances and things called medicine, uh, we have a deliberative process where we have to really understand what the rules are. And it's just so funny that uh, the regulatory process is blamed uh, when actually these folks are supposed to be abiding by the state law and they're not. Um, and that's why we we have all these issues. So anyway, really good story. Uh, well worth your time to read the link between Oklahoma uh, and New York uh, as well. Um, and then the other big news, and this kind of happened over the weekend, uh, but Germany, their parliament approved uh, cannabis legalization, uh, asterisk there. Uh, it's not legalization like what we understand in the U.S. Um, it's really more like decrim, they're allowing uh, people to use and have uh, marijuana on their per- uh, on their person, not commercialization at this point. Um, they're going to have what looks to be clubs of some sort with uh, adults-only members where they can exchange cannabis. Um, so it's going to be much more scaled down, limited version than what we're seeing in the U.S., at least at this point. Um, and that is a moving uh, ball in terms of what the regulations and what uh, the marijuana policy is going to end up being in Germany. But um, this is going to be news we'll be following. We'll have more updates on this on the podcast as well as in, in future drug report uh, emails as well. So that's kind of the news that's driving uh, this first drug report uh, email this week that I wanted to highlight for you all as well as just that that previous story. Um, I wanted to also let you know uh, we're going to start doing some interviews here. So uh, I think hopefully uh, if, if everything kind of aligns, we're going to uh, for the next episode in, in two days, we are going to have an interview with um, Chrissy Gronwagen, who heads up the Parent Action Network division of SAM. Um, she and I are going to do a little interview about PAN and how parents can get involved. So if you're a parent out there, um, definitely tune into the next episode. We're going to talk with Chrissy about that, get to know Chrissy a little better. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and so before I wrap up today's episode, uh, Kevin and I were in New Orleans uh, last Friday uh, speaking, and, and I'm not going to give specifics because this is kind of an off-the-record meeting, but um, giving a talk with some of the most prominent business leaders and wealthy folks in a very large southern state. And some of those folks were actually invested in the industry, and one of them, one of the, the wealthiest men in the state, uh, actually owned a marijuana farm. And they, those individuals that were in the industry, the, the wealthy gentleman who was 
uh, owned this large marijuana farm, were sitting front row, right in front of Kevin as he was giving his talk about marijuana. And he had a segment where he basically addressed his remarks to them. And it was pretty awesome, pretty motivating. It defines what we at SAM are all about, which is speaking truth to power, being brave and courageous when we do that. Kevin really exemplified that. I'm pumped for you to hear this excerpt. I pulled a clip from that talk. We happen to record it. You're going to love this. This is what we're about here at SAM, and I know this is what all of you are about as well in fighting for public health and everything that you do. So check out this clip, and I'm going to let it wrap with the end of this clip. So thank you all so much, and I hope you have a great uh, Monday and a great beginning to your week. Thanks. And unfortunately, in this country, we've in many states, the pot shops are near the liquor outlets. They're near the checks cashed, you know, payday loan at the low interest rate of 17.9% every day. Um, you know, they're in the food deserts. They're in the areas of black and brown population on purpose. Because if you're in the drug industry, you go to the most vulnerable. This is why the cigarette industry is killing themselves over trying to get menthol not banned. This is why uh, there are eight times as many liquor stores in our country in black communities than in white communities. It's not because black people drink more than whites. It's because you go to the more vulnerable areas where you're more likely to have a problem with it. And if you're in an area with not a good education, with textbooks that are 30, 50 years old, with you know, bad healthcare access, poor housing, you're more likely to slide into addiction. Addiction, if you're in the business of addiction, is a good thing. Because that's like a frequent flyer, like me, frequent flyer. That's what you are if you're in the addiction business. You want people to be using your product a lot. In any business, you want people to use your product. There are people in the hospitality industry, you know that 80% of your revenue come from the 20% of people like me who stay in a hotel 150 nights a year or more. That's called the 80-20 rule. That's Econ 101, Pareto's rule, 80-20. And it's the same thing in the addiction business. You don't need everybody addicted. But you need about 20 to 25%, they'll use 80% of your product. And those people are the most important to you because that's how you're gonna make your money. And I hate to say it, this has really become about money.